It's only right that during this winning women's series of Downtown's M podcasts, I remind you that on the 10th of March, Downtown in Business will host its Women in Business Awards at the Crown Plaza Hotel in Liverpool. We literally have 30 tickets available as I speak. It may be less by now. So go on to our website, all the W's downtown in business.com. Direct yourself to the Women in Business Awards section on that website. Book your tickets today. Don't be disappointed. It's always a fantastic day. And we have some great entrepreneurs in the room to celebrate with us. Sponsored this year by Lloyds Bank and Biograd. That's the 10th of March, Crown Plaza Hotel, Liverpool. And it's a daytime event. Uh, We finish very late at night, though. But it is a daytime event. Hope to see you there. Well, in the Downtown's M with me today, uh, as part of our Winning Women series, is Rose Marley. She's currently the Chief Executive of Cooperatives UK. But before that, she's had a glittering, diverse and really interesting career journey. I'm sure you're going to enjoy Rose as she talks about her days in the music industry, the early days of Manchester when she started out. She's also done some work with the Sharp Project, a really uh, innovative digital and tech project over in Manchester as well. She's worked with Andy Burnham, uh, with Manchester City Council, uh, and on many social inclusion projects uh, that have made uh, a genuine difference, uh, certainly to Greater Manchester, but to other parts of the UK as well. I'm sure you'll enjoy this podcast with me, Frank McKenna, and Rose Marley. Rose, the latest guest in our Winning Women series in the Downtown Den. Welcome to the Downtown Den podcast with me, Frank McKenna. This is episode seven, season two. And of course, it's our Winning Women series. And I'm absolutely thrilled to have in the Downtown Den today, Rose Marley. Rose is the Chief Executive of Cooperatives UK. Uh, But what a glittering career she has had thus far, and I'm sure there's more to come. I was just saying to Rose uh, before we came on air that I feel like an underachiever, having read the variety, the array, the diverse activity that she's been involved in. So, Rose, welcome to the Downtown Den. Thank you. And that's very uh, kind. Uh, definitely. Um, I don't know about glittering, but I'd say more checkered than glittering when it comes to my career. <laughs> well, I, I tell you, it reads very impressively anyway. So let's go back in time and just talk us through the early days of your career. What was interesting you, how you got into uh, your first sort of job and your foray into the world of business? Well, actually, um, my career started when I was quite young, when I was a teenager, because I was fortunate enough to be growing up in a period uh, known as Manchester, where the, the youth and, and culture movement across Manchester actually, you know, inspired the rest of the world. Um, and growing up in that was a very entrepreneurial time. It was a very exciting time. And if I'm entirely honest, Frank, I spent quite a lot of my time trying to get in places for free because I was a kid from North Manchester that never had any money um, and uh, trying to, um, as we know in Manchester, blag my way into things and backstage and all that type of stuff. 
and that became my career. So it was never a considered plan. But from that point on, I did end up working um, in the music business. Um, and, you know, Manchester was a gift for me because it did shine a spotlight on Manchester in that period. And this accent uh, suddenly had a value and a worth that it wouldn't normally have had in places like Hoxton Square in London. And uh, me and a whole host of other Mancunians made the most of that uh, yeah, and turned them into careers. And it was such an exciting and vibrant time, wasn't it, for Manchester? And I know, again, we were chatting before we started recording about the late great Tony Wilson and the Hacienda uh, and all of the uh, things that 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 acted as a catalyst for, really, didn't it? I'm reading Andy Spinoza's book at the moment, Manchester Unspun, which uh, I'm sure you get a, a mention or two in. But from your perspective, Rose... When you were involved in that as much as you were, were you aware of the impact it was having beyond the boundaries of the city? So I wasn't involved in the factory era. I mean, the first time I went to the Hacienda, which was 1989, but I was 15 years old, actually. Um, and uh, look, we've got, I, I moved my desk so that I could be inspired by uh, what I have on my wall. You can see Tony Wilson literally sat on my shoulder there. Um, so the, the impact Tony's had, I do feel like he's down my ear quite a lot of the time. Um, because actually, and it was, it was Peter Savile, one of the founders of a factory that described factory as a as a cooperative which of course is what i'm doing now he described it as a, as a social enterprise now again i don't think that was intentional and um, but what actually that business did was create not just economic impact but incredible social impact and i would say i was not aware of it at, at the time only in the perspective of, of, of like i say having opportunities that i wouldn't normally ha, ha, have been able to access um, but in terms of social impact you know the social mobility of let's say coming from North Manchester, you know, uh, Blakely, Moston area. There's no way I should have, you know, on paper been able to have the career that, that I've got. And I, I directly attribute that to, to not just Manchester, but to actually Manchester Council providing free music lessons for for, for young people. And, and as we know, and Tony was the first to say it, that, you know, sports and, and music culture is often, you know, that catapult um you know, uh, out of maybe a trajectory that, uh, you know, you, you, you might have been uh, born into. And so that social mobility and the impact that was created, I didn't realise at the time. At the time, we were having a great time. Like I said, it was incredibly entrepreneurial. We were always, I did, again, it's only on reflection that I realised I was being a social entrepreneur at that stage because I was putting on raves in the local church church hall um but the way the, the way that i'd convinced the, the priest to let us do that is we'd fundraise for you know whatever charity at the time or you know like i said we'd create um sort of what you'd now call sort of career development opportunities but for the youth group we were like no it'd be great we'll all learn how to you know run a door and to make flyers and promotion so i was always trying to match business with impact actually so i didn't realize it at the time no not at all i knew it was great frank you know it was it really was a special time but i didn't realize the significant impact it would have on on my life and career and actually on on, on the career of um 
many people around me and um, but the impact on on, on manchester as well and, and one of the things that we're i'm really excited about doing next month is going to south by southwest in, in texas uh, america um to launch a new music co-op beyond the music uh, with new order but one of the reasons new order is is coming with us and is really supportive um uh of that is that it's the 40th anniversary of, of Blue Monday. And actually, if you think about what, you know, that track sort of symbolizes uh, New Order. Um, but the idea of, of the impact that that had on Manchester, but again, New Order would talk about the impact of growing up in a city on, on their music. And there's something symbiotic about being from Manchester, I think, and being entrepreneurial and being involved in culture. You can um you can't not be involved in those things if you grow up in Manchester. And we often talk about Manchester's renaissance over the past 30 years now, really. Uh, you know, fabulous leadership in terms of Sir Howard Bernstein, Richard Lees, and now followed by Bev and Joanne, of course. But we look at the buildings, don't we? And we look at what has happened to the landscape of the place, we perhaps, from outside looking in, don't necessarily value as much that cultural impact that you've talked about so eloquently there, Rosa. And and for me, because, you know, when I was coming across to Manchester and meeting with people like Tony and Tom Bloxman, Peter Savile, who you've mentioned, Colin Sinclair was running a door at the time, would you believe? Um, you know, it was it was very clear to me that that whole community was having a huge influence, not just in terms of the cultural aspect, but as you say, it was having a genuine economic impact on the city as well. Yeah, without a doubt. And, uh, you know, um, you talk about great leadership in, in the city. And that's one of the things that I do think, you know, has been. Um, certainly as a as a as a female um in the city i've never felt in any way a gender bias actually um being in this city i've always felt that if you want to do something um and you prove to people that you've got the ability and the skills that that you are given the opportunity and i think that's been a, a really strong leadership piece now with with bev and joanne but as you say with um you know the likes of, of, of tony as figureheads and and and, and the likes of uh, Sir Richard, and again, there's a, a the picture behind me there above Tony is of, a, of an event Manchester Together, which was um, after the first anniversary of the Manchester Arena attack, and um, I led uh, a, an event called Together in One Voice, where you know we all basically came together in Albert Square. When I say we all, you know, about twenty thousand people, um, uh, I, and, and formed a, a massive choir. Um, and you know, introduced all the songs and came together. And, uh, but if you remember at the time, again, that wasn't a strategy or a plan. That was just the natural instinct of the people of, of Manchester just responded in song. Um, it wasn't anybody like kind of sat down and, and worked that out. You know, things like how "Don't Look Back in Anger" was just sang in St Anne's Square, and you know, the, the lights of SJM pulling together that huge. Um, show as well you know let's say it's in our dna uh culture and, and music and again that great leadership you talk about you know i think what um has happened in in, in this city probably more than any other cities in the north is um that there has been the defense of that culture so you know it's always a challenge you know in particularly in council budgets but certainly you know from my perspective i'm very grateful that our leaders 
do make sure that we've got um you know like theaters to go to and and, and, and all the things that you'd expect of a, of a modern city uh you know the original modern city as peter saville would say um because it's really important and it's really important that you bring up young people in in, in schools um i say young girls in 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 particular and give them that vision and aspiration that you can um you can you can be part of that and um, I, I worked on something actually another great leader in our city region andy burnham i worked on something called um our pass which is um, a travel and opportunities card for young people which was part of andy's mayoral manifesto and he was really clear and one of the reasons he, he brought me in to help sort of bring it through um was because he he was very aware of the fact that you can have these big shiny buildings like like you say frank you know the likes of the the bridgewater hall or media city and if you're from rochdale or wigan or oldham you know there's a real disc or not even that if you're from let's say blakely moston withenshaw do you feel like you can walk into those buildings do you feel like they're part of you know the gift to you as a citizen of, of, of greater manchester because they are and actually you do have to do things like our pass where you're encouraging young people to go go to the bridgewater hall for the first time because actually once you've been to some of those places that's when you feel connected uh, a lot more to um being able to attend and involve yourself in in culture and you know that that's there's um a great poem uh by uh mike mike garrett about uh saint anthony and he says you know um you know talk to me at some arty party show you know and you'd have people like uh, tony and yourself frank i believe at all the art shows kind of you know and and let's like, say as a kind of you know um you know general kind of kid from from uh manchester you can feel that that's overwhelming and beyond your your reach and i think it's it's on us all to make sure to make that connection i'm really frustrated at the moment about the lack of creativity that's in the school curriculum you know culture and creativity are the life blood for so many people it's it's it gives you the joy of life doesn't it so it should be a gift that everybody gets to explore mm. and that opportunity of inclusion through culture obviously important um, but nobody will be more aware than you that there always has to be a return on investment for this stuff. So it's great that the local authority fund as much as they do and, you know, councils across the country likewise. But equally, what I've always admired about Manchester, its ability to leverage that into investment, into getting it into the story about regeneration. So it's not seen as a bolt-on. It's seen very much as integral to the city's growth. And you've mentioned the trip to the States that you're going on. That is to attract investment, to make links, to get commercial, as I say, return on the amount of stuff that goes on in the city. Um, and then I suppose if I can match that to, you know, your own values and principles and how you then weave that into that cooperation if I can use that word, and collaboration between those many different diverse range of people, businesses, entrepreneurs that you've got in Manchester. And again, just a, a name of, of a business that we work closely with, there's many others in Manchester as well, of course, but Bruntwood. And the amount, again, what always impressed me about the city, the amount of those people who will put their hand in the pocket to fund and give people opportunities. Well, it's funny you should mention uh, that organisation in, in particular, but um, 
by default of uh, when, like I said, we were kind of kids growing up, wanted to turn this um, Manchester lark into a, <laughs> a paid full-time uh, job. Uh, uh, myself and uh, co-founder um, of Silk Studios, Lee Stanley, we applied for a Prince's Youth Business Trust Award uh, to get a, a MIDI studio, a dance studio off the ground, which were unheard of uh, at that time. It, it, um, and basically, we also entered a Be Your Own Boss competition for the Manchester Evening News. And the prize was from Bruntwood to uh, get your year, year's uh, property, you know, whoever whoever won. And we didn't for one second believe we'd, we'd win. We had this, you know, crazy idea to set up a recording studio in a way that's never not been done before using, because at the time you needed a lot of money to set up studios, you know, big desks and engineers and, you know, but we could see this, this MIDI studio where you could just run a studio off a laptop, which is just standard practice now. Um, but it, at the time that was really groundbreaking but we did need some certain things in the studio so things like access you know loading bays you know for bands to get in and out of and all that type of stuff and it needed to be city center so that you know people could go and get you know drinks after the sessions and all that type of stuff so we, we didn't think for one second we did think our business plan was good but we didn't think for one second we would win it because we'd we'd search Bruntwood's properties and they didn't have anything that would match the portfolio so when we did go on to win uh, the, the Be Your Own Buzz Business uh, Award and then Bruntwood also realised that they didn't have any <laughs> properties that matched what our business plan was asking at the time because we've got loads now. Um, they paid for our rent actually for the first two years at New Mount Street. So um, there's a perfect example, Frank, that you've touched on of where, you know, and it comes up and believe you me, it, you know, it, it does come back, you know, because um, I'd say that that investment that they made in, you know, a couple of kids starting out a, a music business, um, you know, I, I've gone on to book uh, Broadwood to do things like MFM at the Sharp Project or, you know, rent their studios. And like you say, this idea of, you know, it's, it's something that's really important to, to what you, you've just said there, cooperation. And it's this kind of community wealth building that actually, you know, if, if within your own city and, and city region, um, you can, you know, keep employment, um, you know, kind of in your supply chain as much as possible, work with people around you. The benefits for, for, for everybody are a lot stronger. And not to take away, you know, because Manchester does get accused of that, which I understand kind of building, you know, big city skylines and, you know, but meanwhile, you know, what about the, the people? But that's where I bring it back to. And I do attribute this to, to a certain extent to being a female, but that's why I say I'm a social entrepreneur uh, as opposed to, you know, just an entrepreneur, because in all the businesses I've had, not least um, Sharp Futures, the social enterprise that we founded. And obviously now at Cooperative UK, we do loads. Um, I'm interested in people as much as the profit. So you're absolutely right. You have to make a profit because you have to be able to invest in a going concern and the development of innovation. But you also have to invest in your people and you also have to have a clear vision and understanding for the impact that you can make on things like skills in, in, a, in a growing city like we're in, that's a, a massive consideration. Mm. Uh, Rose, let me just take you back to those early days of your career then. You're obviously um, really interested and involved in the music scene. Um, so how did that then develop your career and talk us through where you went next on this journey of yours? So I was, uh, let's say, kind of 
putting on nights, uh, selling t-shirts, doing whatever we could to, uh, you know, manage uh, to be able to, to, to go out generally. Um, and I then um, decided to do a media degree at Leeds University. And now this is just dead common practice now that you'd have a placement, but at the time, it was just Leeds, uh, Stirling and Belfast uh, and Canterbury. That was it. They were the only places that did media. And certainly this idea of placements, you know, 100 years ago uh, was, was a new thing. So I was at Leeds University and, I, and on, on a pay phone in the foyer of, uh, of our student halls. Every day I used to ring factory records and ask them, would they let me do um, a placement with them uh, there? Um, now, unbeknown to me at the time, Factory Records was going under. Um, <laughs> they didn't want anybody on site. Particularly, I kept saying, I know Northside, I know Northside, so you've got to let me in. Um, and eventually, um, a very kind lady called Jane Lemon, again, to your point, Corporation, I've worked with Jane. She's at the council now. I'm sure you know Jane. She's been in the press offices a long time. But at the time, Jane Lemon worked at Factory Records and she took pity on the, the girl that was hounding the phones every day to say, please let me come and, and, and work. I'll do it for free and I'll be brilliant. Um, and she pointed me in the direction of um, one of the factory directors that had just stepped down, um, a lady called Tina Simmons, who had set up... Um, her own business she was managing the producer martin hannah at the time and she was in again something that was really new at the time like a managed workspace but it was just one office on church street that had in it playtime records and the new fast automatic daffodils and um blast hard agency and a whole bunch of music businesses were all in this one space so i did my work experience there um and then you know, and it's my bit of advice to anybody starting out. I made myself so indispensable that eventually they had to start paying for me. Not much, like I just about managed to cover my bus fare and my lunch, but you know, I managed to 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 make that my regular summer job and 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 generally, yeah, that became the career. Now at the time, let's say factory was going under, and then something Tony and his co-founder Yvette Livesey were starting in the city, which was an international music conference. And again, at a similar time, all that started, and and that's where, again, I got opportunities to be able to to work, you know, in the professional music industry. And it was a brilliant um, opportunity because once a year, every year, you know, the the, the global music industry all eyes on, on Manchester and all these you know amazing um artists and managers and publishing companies would all you know fly fly into Manchester and we'd have this uh, fantastic conference and I just learned absolutely loads and like I say ended up the very first music managers forum was started there I was in that meeting and ended up becoming a music manager and so if I'm entirely honest, I'd say there was never a strategic plan. It was always um, about survival um, and probably a, a little bit about not getting a proper job as well. <laughs> and perseverance at the start, though, um, you know, you can't underestimate that, can you? Because the number of people who probably make one, two, at most three telephone calls and then would take the no as a no, and it sounds to me as though you're just battering them. You know, you just kept going until the answer became a positive one. And then moving on from that, and it's funny the way people describe what I think is their talent being recognised as a little bit of luck. And women in particular do that, actually. Um, fellas like me always say, well, I was so talented that I stood out and they gave me the job that I obviously deserved. 
so, so Rose, from, from your perspective, were you learning a little bit about yourself at that period of time? You've clearly, you've said, I didn't have a strategy. I didn't really have an idea of a, a job, a career. It was about survival, but I guess also it was about enjoying yourself. It was a job and a career that you were starting to carve out where I guess that you were getting up of the morning thinking, great, this, this is what I want to do. Yeah, it was normally the afternoon, to be fair, in the music industry. <laughs> that's how we were getting up. But yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a great time. And it's really interesting that you say that that period of reflection, because actually that did lead to my journey as a social entrepreneur, which was really strategically kind of planned and, and considered, and not least being a woman again. Because what I did through that period, you know, I went through. Um, Again, it's a you know a big kind of female theme, but I absolutely felt that imposter syndrome. So I'd find myself in in, in meetings at, at places like you know EMI Records, um, you know with with very wealthy, uh, very well educated uh, people, and I'd catch a glimpse of myself in in the mirror and think, oh no, they're gonna they're gonna realise I'm from Boston, and you know I shouldn't be here, and I, and I don't really know what I'm doing, and, and nobody's really trained me in this. I went from that to realising, hang on a minute, nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> it's just they've been trained, particularly you know private uh, school training, in, in that absolute confidence. And, and you're not wrong. I know it's a generalisation, but you're not wrong that you know that is a male tendency to have that level of confidence and actually I started looking at the world and, and seeing you know all this privilege actually and this lack of social mobility and this lack of kind of it's not about how talented you you are it's about which school you went to and what contacts you've got and, and yes absolutely um you know a little bit of luck and being at the right time at the right place um and that actually, it was when I got uh, pregnant with my first child that I really started to do that reflection piece, like you said, about, you know, thinking about what skills I had and what value I brought to the world. Because, the, again, very, you know, uh, you know, female thing. But for me, it was about, you know, people when, when they get pregnant, you know, they set up the nursery, you know, and start feathering the, the feathering the nest. You know, my, my mum always says, you never got round to doing the nursery. You just decided to try and <laughs> like fix the whole world, you know, to bring a child into. But that that was the reflection. It was like, what what is this world that I'm bringing a child into? And actually, you know. What what impact will I have made when I when I finally leave this world? That great, I was able to, you know, get free things for celebrities or put on great events. You know, where you know I, I was looking for that substance. I was looking for that connection back to, um, like I say, making that 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 social impact. And then that's where we went on the journey. Like I say to to set up social enterprises and and let's like say eventually I've ended up at, at Cooperatives UK. But it was a very considered reflection about bringing more value to your business dealings than like I say just profit mm. and then I think again it'd be fair to say that you know you've stood out as a, a personality who was a doer someone who delivered you know when I've spoken to people about Rose Marley they say to me well if you want something doing give it to her and so therefore you know the city leadership if I can describe it as a collective were always good and still are good, I think, at identifying those people. Uh, and they very quickly weed out bullshitters in Manchester, don't they? 
So, you, you know, you can have an awful lot of good talkers in, in some places, mentioning no names and no other cities. Um, but actually, you know, what I find refreshing about Manchester is there's people who actually, yeah, they're good talkers, but they actually are good at delivery as well. And so did you approach the city with certain initiatives or did the city approach you and say, Rose, we've got this idea we think you'd be good at getting involved in this and, and help and progress and drive it forward? A little bit of both, actually, depending, uh, you know, what it, what it was. I think the first time I approached the city was our first um, social enterprise, which was called Votive, and it was about raising aspiration and, and attendance in schools because it was, like I said, this reflective piece, becoming think, becoming a mum myself and um, just just understanding and reading up a lot on life chances and, and how where you're born and what your education is and, and how much you attend school even can dictate your future life chances. And at the time, um, I think Labour was still in power and there was a lot more money for things like culture and creativity. But we'd actually got a little bit disillusioned at Silk Studios because we were often being asked to... Um, have people in the studio. So, for example, young people that have been on solvent uh, abuse um, recovery programs and they were using rap and, and, and music um, to build up, you know, um, the skills and confidence. And you'd often find in these grant scenarios that there was a lot of money coming into the system, but, you know, one quango after the another had skimmed the top of it. And then by the time it got to the, the, the kid, let's say, that was doing the recording, there was no money to burn him a CD at the end of it because, you know, like I say, where, where that money went. So we had this real strong vision, uh, Lee Stanley and I, uh, that we wanted to um, create a business that wasn't a begging bowl, it wasn't a charity, it was going to trade and it was going to use, you know, which is exactly what social enterprise is, use the profits to reinvest back into the the, the social impact you're trying to make or the model of change you're trying to make. And like I say, at the time, it was all about improving aspiration school attendance. So we looked at, well, what are all our skills and things like knowing how media works and having access to celebrities. And we created all these experiences where we were doing, giving out badges uh, for school attendance, but they were, uh, you know, designed and endorsed by in, in secondary schools, it'd be like Ben Sherman and, and, and Enemy and, and Nando's. And in primary schools, it was Lego and Top Trumps and um, Crayola. Um, but then we do like Star for a Day with Ben Sherman and, and, and Rio Ferdinand, where we take young people, you know, on a day with Rio Ferdinand, where he'd get kitted out of Ben Sherman, but we'd show them all the other jobs and roles, like actually what it's like to open up Harvey Nicks in the morning or to be the driver or, you know, so we did a lot of that. And, and, and we went, we very specifically had this idea and plan, and we went to Manchester Council at the time school services were all procured by the council, by the local authority. And we were saying, we, we can improve school attendance across Manchester. We can raise aspirations. This is what it'll cost and how you'll do it. So there's absolutely been times when we've, you know, and certainly I've gone with a, this is what I want to do. And this is what I believe, like you said, the investment, the return, you know, the social return on investment as much as the financial return on, on investment will be. But then there's been other times um, where like the city's come to me. So, for example, the Sharp Project, which is something I was the, the founding COO of, that was very much um, the city had come to me um, to ask me to kind of help turn this 
decrepit building that was full of rainwater and rats under the, the um, uh, leadership of Sue Woodward at the time, who was the CEO, um, into something that was meaningful to the young people around it of Garton and Newton Heath and Harper Hay. And, you know, um, and let's say when as I was set, the, the deal was, if you like, to, for me to be CEO of the Sharp Project to get it up and running, but it was so that we could start the Social Enterprise Sharp Futures, which, you know, is 12 years in now and he's still producing young people and getting them into the lights of Channel 4 and BBC and you know so young people like myself and Lee would have been which were you know just kind of normal working class kids with no idea about the careers you could have in media entertainment content delivery and certainly no way to access the way in and that's what we created at, at Sharp Futures so yeah different ones I mean there was the one I mentioned Manchester Together was a good example and Tony Wilson was always brilliant at this. If you say something out loud, it just tends to become the truth and it tends to happen. And, and with Manchester Together, at the time, I was managing the poet Tony Walsh, um, who had delivered This Is The Place um, on the steps of, 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 the, um, of the town hall, you know, uh, just after the arena attack. And Tony was getting a lot of requests about, you know, the first anniversary and and you know, Tony and I were very conscious that it was about people coming together and it wasn't about celebrity and, and all that type of stuff. So we just kept saying, like, why don't we all just sing? And I just kept saying it. And I was also very conscious of the fact that there was a lot of people, just people wanted to come together, but also people wanted to um, kind of, um, you know, Tony was getting a lot of requests to attend a lot of things. So it was like, well, why, why let's see what Manchester do. So I remember putting the phone call into Manchester saying, what are you doing you know and at the time that it was like well, we're not entirely sure yet you know and so I said well we should just sing we should just sing you know and then the next minute you know you see you get the phone call oh right okay you're on the steering committee and and you're doing this now and you know so so like a bit a bit of both really like I, said, I think Manchester um does have an environment where if you prove that you can do things and if you you go out and do things that you touched, you said a word before, like bullshitter. I think it's really, there's a big difference between a bullshitter and being a blagger. Um, and I'm a proud blagger. You know, if you're a blagger, I always say this, if you're a blagger, it means you've got somebody to do something they didn't want to do, or you've got something for free. And it's used as a very derogatory term, being a blagger. Um, and it's a very, like say, mancune, you know, you know, scouse uh, term, but you know, um, actually, I think it's a huge skill. And I think if you were born in Westminster, you're not called a blagger, you're called a you know high level negotiator. It's the same <laughs> yeah. skill. It's the same skill. Whereas bullshitting, like you say, is, is is just not delivering. You've got to deliver. You can say I'm gonna do this and then and then not deliver. It's just put a lot of pressure on on me for things because once I put my name to something, I do tend to feel a, a, a complete responsibility to make sure it delivers. We had a bullshit in a number 10 not so long ago, but we won't go there, Rose. We won't go there. <laughs> so in terms of um, the, the Shaw Project, obviously, again, I, I'm aware of that initiative, a really successful, uh, again, catalyst, I suppose, in terms of the digital tech community in Manchester. Uh, and you were the COO uh, of, of that project. Um, how did you sort of see that develop? And, and then, you know, talk us through how that then got you to where you are today. Yeah, the Sharp Project was um, 
really exciting actually and the very first time I went to the Sharp project uh, when I just referred to let's say putting uh, raves on and things uh, in, in return for giving uh, charity money to, to the church one of the things that we had done at that time was we'd written to every big business that we could think of asking them for prizes for our raffle to send con medical consignments to Africa and Sharp Electronics replied and they gave us a ghetto blaster. This was the 80s. We were like, so I remember the very first time going to Sharp Electronics to go and pick up the ghetto blaster that they were giving us for our, our, our prize raffle. And then let's say like 20 years later, uh, there was a whole team of people, not least uh, Keith Joblin, who did the Rope for Luck video for the Happy Mondays and coined the term Manchester. A whole bunch of people that actually what we'd done was we put on the Tony Wilson experience for, for Tony's memorial. A whole bunch of us had kind of come together um, working. And, and and Keith kept saying about this, there's this building on, on Oldham Road and, you know, the council own it. And, you know, it, we, we think that the creative and tech and digital industry should own it. So there was a vision there that started with, with, a, with again, with a few, um, few people. Um, that I kind of ended up um, getting uh, embroiled in. Um, but the vision was always there that, you know, that was a, a clear vision around like tech and, and digital and actually understanding the future. You know, uh, uh, you know, now we're on the um, verge of, you know, uh, another industrial uh, revolution, Industry 4.0, where the whole world is, is turning um, upside down and back again you know the, the 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 period we're in is so pivotal for for humankind and I'll come back to why cooperatives are dead significant in that but let's say you know those people talking about broadband and internet exchanges and and understanding let's say we'd had midi studios you know that level of digital and tech but actually understanding the follow the sun model of working all year round so there was a really clear and strong vision but Manchester Council's vision you know was really clear it was about skills it was about developing skills and opportunity for, for young people it was about creating businesses um, and yes we were the first kind of you know uh, tech hub outside of London and we were like a Google Plex before Google did it and you know when you walk in the Sharp Project it was like walking into the Hacienda but like a business version of it um, and, and, and again, in the style of Hacienda and, and everything else, um, it ran out of money before it was <laughs> finished a little bit. Um, and so a lot of it, some of those things that we had to do, like we had this big, massive campus, this big, massive open space. And a lot of property developers would come and say, why, why have you got that big open space? What's the yield on that? And, you know, within the first year, we were able to say, well, about 30 apprentices actually is, is the yield, you know, um, and let's say we, we, we again have to get on the phones flagging for people to put in some furniture and to events to be put on. And sometimes those challenges that, that you come across actually define the solutions, define a route and a path that you wouldn't have come up with had you not had those challenges. So let's say the Sharp project was presented to me as a, can you help get it up and running? My view was, well, let's start this social enterprise. Let's start Sharp Futures. Let's show the young people around here all the things that I didn't know about how you can be a freelancer, how you can work in, in this industry. So let's say we, we went on to set up um, Sharp Futures, which I'm still on the board of um, today. And that was really, you know, uh, again, really disruptive, really innovating. Um, really making a difference to, to the lives of, of young people and it was at that point it was in mid-pandemic as well 
The thing with Sharp Futures, I, I used to do Sharp Futures apparently on paper three days a week because we never wanted to that point back again. We never wanted to be one of those quangos that needed like one of those organizations that just needs feeding because it's kind of become a beast in its own right. So I worked there three days a week as, as as the CEO. And then I still kept a couple of days for Rose Marley Management so that when, you know, we were skin um, as a family and I needed to earn more money, I could do some consultancy work or I could do something that would pay the bills and it wouldn't be all on, on, on sharp futures. And so that's when I did things like, you know, our, our past as well. But in that period then, let's say in, in the pandemic in particular, uh, it was when I got the, the phone call from sort of Cooperatives uh, UK to say, yeah, we're, re you know, we we're really keen to talk to you about coming in and helping, you know, this amazing, you know, co-ops are the very first social purpose business ever in the world. They started here in Greater Manchester, you know, um, and, you know, they're worth trillions worldwide. They're worth 40 billion in the UK alone. There's like 7,000 cops in every sector. And it's a really, I feel like it's a business secret. It's a way you can run a business with collectives of people um, who want to affect change and who want to get things done. So it really sang to me, um, that idea of, of like, say, organising people, because that's what I've naturally done, organise people to create trade. But that trade's got a kind of, wider purpose like i say than the the end game being profit actually in, in a co-op the members own the co-op and often you know uh the co-op might be around you know a community business or it might we've seen some really exciting ones in energy you know people clubbing together to build wind turbines and yeah you know that the original disruptive model those rochdale pioneers that went hang on a second this isn't fair this isn't right we're going to disrupt this market and what an amazing time and opportunity right now to be in that space at the beginning of a, a, another revolution where like i say the reason i believe cooperatives are going to be so significant for the future is because blockchain's actually a co-op it's collections of decisions being made by lots of people at once so this idea that you know you can have a stake you can have a say you can take more control over where you shop you know what your where you work you know like loads of co-ops again people don't realize but you know various like sports clubs and fan-led clubs like um fc united to co-op so this idea that you can give more power to people to affect their own lives and affect change really really sang to me and then the fact that like I say it all started in greater manchester anyway um how could i how could i not have taken this role <laughs> and, and as you've mentioned a couple of times when you've been speaking rose it's timely in a sense because uh, again you may not agree with this but my sense is that generally uh, businesses have started to become more conscious about their requirements how can i put this best to involve themselves genuinely in the community to actually look after the workforce to care about their environment but a lot of them don't know how to do that uh, and it's not for want of not wanting to not wishing to but it's that support that sort of framework that they need and i think what i've always seen the co-op as um i'm a member of the co-op um, so I've always seen that as a place that can offer that sort of guidance, offer that support, uh, and just generally add some value to our culture. And obviously, because 
it's grown up in Manchester, then that feeling of cooperation, collaboration, and the ethics and values that your organisation holds is quite a natural thing, I think, for, for many in the city. But equally, I think that's starting to happen across the country. Now, as I say, I don't know whether that's the perception that you have, but that's certainly the feeling I get. And I guess that, you know, your job is to continue to get those messages out and to work with as many businesses and other organisations, you know, public sector, social enterprises and so on, that the co-op can support. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think what's, re- what's you know, be- being cynical, uh, you know, uh, what uh, you know general business has woken up to is that good business is good for business so whether that's retaining your staff or acquiring new staff or, or customers are very demanding you know customers want to see ethics and values in their purchasing power so you know I, I'm not convinced that the businesses would have got there themselves some of them anyway um but without a doubt it, it, it's beginning to impact the bottom line and like you say you know um you know the, the co-op the supermarket we know at this, the end of the street is the the biggest and well-known co-op in, in in the UK and they've been pushing the boundary for all business you know whether it's that you know they started fair trade or it's biodegradable carrier bags are the first um you know uh, big business to have an IVF policy in the way you know like they, they push first you know co-op group push first but then like I said it's like 7,000 you know other co-ops which are in things like education energy housing that are very specific models so yeah it's my it's my job to get out there that you can do business in a different way that is led by uh, different drivers other than just shareholder profit let's say i'm not degenerating that at all you know i've run private business in, in the past and small business in particular is the backbone of this country if we didn't have small businesses and i grew up in a family business um it's just different and i think one of the frustrations is 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 just and when you say not knowing how to do that is 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 that when I see kind of you call it greenwashing in in, in uh, kind of well I'm now talking about purpose washing so some some businesses you'll see doing it as a response to tick boxing and actually when you scratch the surface uh, of that it's not as uh, well considered whereas other like say private businesses are doing it really well and incredibly um, effective under CSR programs but like I say that cooperative model where whether it's tenants of a housing association freelancers coming together and um, again as you would expect Greater Manchester's developing some of those models going forward really exciting like you've got um the cooperative infrastructure network and that's a, a tech uh, business but the members of the co-op like you said are public bodies as well as telcos like virgin media and uh, the public all coming together to achieve better connectivity and, and respond to the digital divide and let's like say beyond the music the co-op we're setting up now an international music conference it means that you've got record labels and, and big content companies alongside the trade bodies alongside the artists and the managers and the punters you know, all having a stake and having a say in how that conference is run and what it achieves. And instead of going to a conference and you know what it's like, you sit and you watch a panel and it's it's inspiring and everybody's fired up and it's amazing and this is the change we all want. And then everybody goes back to the desks and, and nothing changes for another year. So what we're trying to do with this co-op is like actually through the year, those members of the co-op, because they've come to be on the music, are getting to drive through some of those changes we want to see like better mental health awareness in it, it you know for for freelancers actually in the industry so i think there's i think there's 
lots of lots of ways to respond and i am really really pleased that i say you know a, a business that um started in manchester the, the worldwide impact of, of co-ops actually is is really you know f- phenomenal just the top 300 co-ops in the world bringing 1.3 trillion you know we employ 13 um uh, million uh, people worldwide and uh, but it's just another format of business actually it's a different way of doing doing business and we've not got to we've got to keep pushing the bar for all business you know there's things like the better business act which is kind of trying to hardwire into our constitution that all business considers not just people and and, and profit but planet as well and that sustainability piece um so yeah so i'm a big advocate of 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 let's say yes obviously of co-ops and other forms of social enterprise but of all businesses um trying to you know, consider the impacts that they're making on the, the their employees and their customers and their stakeholders now. But what what's that legacy that they're leaving behind as well? Mm. Uh, really interesting. You know, so many of the things that you've said chime with me, and the, the point that you made is actually about tick boxing. I mean, how often and in how many ways in which we operate and we see things operate and do you see those people who just oh yeah tick box tick box local authorities tend to be uh, my bugbear as far as that's concerned sorry about that um so not all of them just some of them um so listen rose you, you it seems to me you know given the career journey you've had given the conversation that we've had this afternoon where you've just been talking about your values and what really uh you know turns you on in terms of your job and your career you're probably in the perfect job. <laughs> so so I suppose the question would be to end, what are the sort of objectives that you've set yourself within the role as Chief Executive of Cooperatives UK? And what else would you like to achieve on a personal level, do you think? So it's interesting. I'll start with the personal level. One one of the things that I've always done, and when I was saying, you know, my career, if you had kind of plotted it out, you know, I never said I want to be the CEO of Cooperatives UK. This is how I'm going to get there. I just didn't, you know. Um, what I've always done is put my family first. So every decision I've made has not actually been career driven it's been the fact that you know my husband has a chronic illness that often will dictate what what what's happening in in our lives or you know we've had people sadly around me you know dying or I've been pregnant and having children and actually you know my really strong view is that life is more important um you know so a lot of the decisions I make have often been based on what my family needs and sometimes that's been cash you know and they need to go and earn loads of money because we want to buy a house or something um or let's say uh, it's been flexibility because I, I want to pick the children up from school or i've got let's say you know um some caring duties to consider so so i'm a big advocate actually of um for for, for all you know i know this is about like sort of leading field but 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 using that again it's a generalization but that gut instinct that i think just you having if you you know about following those instincts and, and and doing what's right and feeling authentic so when you talk about values i want to be authentic you know what i'm doing at cooperatives uk uh you know with the our new strategy it's about us being the beacon we should be the best co-op that exists our members are other co-ops predominantly we should be the best co-op in the world we're the uk 
UKA PEX body and we started co-ops, we should be amazing. Yeah. And if we're not, what right have we got to, you know, talk to other co-ops about how to do things well or what standards? So I'm always I'm authenticity is big, you know, and 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 that feeling, you know, if you can be, you know, I, I always want to be happy with my own conduct. Um, and that is very much, you know, a, a value that um, that I subscribe to. So, yeah, so, you know, all, all those things around, you know, obviously the co-op values around things like, you know, openness and, and honesty, et cetera. But I think in, in business in particular, you know, doing the right thing and having integrity isn't always the easy thing to do. Um, but I think as a business leader, you have to you touched on it before why am i doing this is it going to bring an economic impact is it going to bring a social impact is it is it fair to the the, the people around you and as long as as for me as long as i go to bed every night feeling happy that i've done a, a good day's work and i've had a good day's pay for it and that i'm confident that i've not done anything is it google that you know do no evil you know but genuinely you know i want to exist as a business leader that is you know, achieving impacts and doing things. So yeah, more more of the same. Uh, like I say, I never never have a plan, so I couldn't possibly tell you any more other than that. But that's you know, follow follow following my instincts. Like I say, trying to make a difference, trying to make that that impact, and and trying very much to show, you know, the younger people, you know, that around you that you can do that and you can operate with strong business values and integrity, and you can still turn a profit and you can still have a nice life and you can still be there for your family I think that is you know in the turbulent times we live in you know that is key for me well Rose not having a plan has served you well so far so just you continue with that not having a plan sure it'll just reap more and more rewards and not just for you personally but for the city and for the cooperative movement. Thanks very much for coming into the downtown den today. It's been a pleasure to have you. Hope you've enjoyed it. I have. Thank you. Great. And hopefully see you at a live event very soon. Look forward to it. Thank you, Frank. Cheers, Rose. Thank you. So that was Rose Marley, the Chief Executive of Cooperatives UK. Uh, modest, to say the least, you know, lots of the achievements that she's able to point to. You notice the number of times she uses the words us and we. Um, very seldom I did this and I did that. She is, uh, in every sense of the word, a cooperator, a collaborator and somebody who has made a huge difference by being able to bring people together and leading them, coming up with ideas, but always ensuring that team spirit exists with the projects that she's been involved with. It was a real pleasure to talk to Rose. It was great as well to reflect on those early days at Manchester. People like Tony Wilson, of course, a great friend to downtown and business. Um, but also, as I say, for Rose to give so much credit to other people around her without necessarily taking the plaudits for all the great work that she's done. So that was Rose Marley, and she was the latest guest in our Downtown Den podcast series of Winning Women. We've got another great Manchester female for you next week as well. That's Natalie Atkinson, who is involved very much in women's football. 
a game that, of course, has hit the headlines for all the right reasons over the last couple of years. So join us for that. Um, But as I say, thanks very much to Rose Marley for what I found to be at least a fascinating discussion.